Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 103 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have the results of a survey into compliance with the gathering of contact info in bars and restaurants in the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK. We then also have news from the ICO of their update on the exam script exemption following COVID-19. Moving away from COVID-19, we then have news of a serious data breach at the British Dentist Association. The Hope House Children's Hospice then confirmed that they've been part of the Blackboard data breach. And we then have news of a data breach at Basingstoke Hospital in Hampshire. We then have two updates for you, one on the Marriott Hotel's data breach and a second on the British Airways data breach. We then move across to America where we have news of a data breach at Havenley. And we then move to Australia where a number of Australian universities have been affected by a POT2U exam tool data breach. We then have an ICO statement in response to the police withdrawal of digital consent forms. And then an update from the ICO on their release of a Freedom of Information Toolkit, which should be of use to public authorities across the UK. We then return to an episode which we previously mentioned in episode 100 and have an update for you on the current status regarding the EU-US Privacy Shield and the standard contractual clauses. And then we finish this week with a look that the ICO has issued explanatory notes to the ICO's age-appropriate design code 2020. So as always, a mix of articles for you. We hope you find something there useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please just email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback that we receive, but unfortunately due to the volume we receive, we can't guarantee to answer each piece of feedback individually. But wherever we can, we do undertake to implement your suggestions into improvements for future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with a look at a survey into the UK public's response to having to give their contact details whenever they enter an establishment for food and drink. The survey was conducted by Opinion Research between the 17th of July and the 20th of July and included 1,908 adults across England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The survey was commissioned by 48AI. So what did the survey find? Well, it found that people were aware of the new rules, that although people were aware of the new rules, most of them have not yet visited an establishment. They don't trust other people to follow the rules. They will provide information to feel safe and to be seen as trustworthy. They are least confident when using QR codes, but very confident when sending text messages. And many will attempt to provide false contact information as they do not trust establishments handling their data, which of course would negate the whole point of the process, as far as COVID-19 is concerned. They also believe that nervousness will rise as establishments use relaxed and potentially unsafe ways to capture information, and establishments are most commonly using pen and paper to collect contact lists. So the key findings from the survey are that 65% of people have not been out to a pub, bar, restaurant or cafe, with two-fifths of those, 38%, saying it's because they don't trust others to follow social distancing rules in public places. 72% of people are aware that the government announced that all pubs, bars, restaurants or cafes must collect and maintain contact information. Personal safety and personal reputation are the overarching reasons why people would provide contact information. A quarter of the people that have been to a pub, bar, restaurant or cafe were not asked for their contact information, 26%, 
with a third, 32%, of people aged 55 and over not being asked, which perhaps shows a generational gap. Text messaging is the key to ubiquitous contact information gathering, with over 8 in 10 feeling confident of using it to provide contact information. But in reality, the primary method people have used when providing their contact information to establishments has been good old pen and paper, but just pen and paper has its own data security impacts, as we know. One in five people and 31% of 18 to 34s said they would provide false contact information because they do not trust an establishment will keep it safe, not misuse it and delete it. So clearly there's a public confidence issue to overcome there. Interestingly, when we look at people being concerned about the social distancing rules not being followed, this is highest amongst those living in the northwest of England, which of course, since this survey was carried out has now had a local lockdown imposed both across Manchester and surrounding areas of Lancashire and now into Preston as well. And those aged 55 or over are much more concerned about social distancing not being followed than the under 35s. When asked why they would be prepared to give information, personal safety was the primary reason given by people who would provide the information, with people wanting to be safe, 48%, and these concerns that they have about potential second spike, 40%. This mindset of personal safety exists is more common amongst women, 54%, and 55 and over is 51%. Personal reputation is the secondary reason for providing contact information, with 47% saying they would do so to follow the rules, 46% to ensure others are safe, 37% to be seen as a responsible person, 30% do what is socially acceptable and be trusted by other people, and 15% to be trusted by establishments. When asked further, people are divided in terms of who they would feel happiest providing their contact information to. Nearly equally split, 24% of people questioned would feel happiest providing their contact information to a local independent pub, bar, restaurant or cafe. 24% say a central database managed by the government and 24% say none of the above. Only 10% say a central database managed by the Hospitality Industry Association and only 6% say they're happy when giving the details when it's to a national pub, bar, restaurant or cafe chain. Now our guess from that would be that people are wary of secondary marketing on the back of this information, even though the government's clear that this information collected for COVID reasons shouldn't be used for marketing. I think in terms of big organisations, then people are more worried that it will be. We mentioned that the survey was sponsored by 48.ai and 48.ai provide pubs, bars, restaurants and entertainment values with a transparent location, checking capability that helps them meet government track and trace guidance, is fully GDPR compliant and importantly doesn't require the pub or restaurant to purchase any new hardware. Easily accessed from any mobile device, no app required. It simply facilitates checking to the venue using mobile, web or SMS with real-time confirmation via email and SMS and our venue dashboard might send in COVID-19 exposure notifications as simple as a few clicks. For more information on 48AI, please visit their website at https colon slash slash go dot 48 dot ai slash COVID hyphen contacts. We should also add that we here at the GDPR Week Show have not received any payment or other incentive from 48AI for including this survey in our GDPR Weekly Show episode this week. Due to the changes in exams by school children in the UK as a result of COVID-19, the ICO has issued updated guidance on its exam script exemption. What the guidance makes clear is that even though this year 
children aren't sitting in exams, but instead teachers will be conducting and submitting pupil assessments which will be used to award their exam grades. The ICO has decided that the exam scripts exemption will still apply for the information used to award student grades. This means that schools don't have to provide a response to requests from students for information about their provisional grades, including the teacher assessments and or rank orders, until after the final results have been published by the examination boards. If a school receives a request from a student before the official results are announced, then the exemption allows for longer response times. The time frame for responding to those requests is either within five months of receiving the request or within 40 days of the exam board announcing the exam results, whichever date is earliest. Requests made after the results are announced need to be dealt with as a normal subject access request, i.e. within 30 days of receipt. However, the ICO has also made clear that it appreciates there may be delays due to the pandemic. Some concerns have been raised that the disclosure of rank orders within small numbers of pupils could reveal the rank orders of other students. When disclosing information, whether that be proactively or in response to a subject access request, the school needs to consider if the information they're providing would reveal something about another individual. If so, then you need to think about whether it would be reasonable to disclose it rather than withhold it. For example, if a student requests information about their rank order and it could reveal information about other students, you'll have to decide whether it's reasonable to disclose this information rather than withhold it. This would depend upon the specific circumstances. For example, disclosing to a student that they rank first in the top grade is unlikely to disclose individual level information above, about the rest of the class. All it reveals is that the rest of the class rank below them rather than by any other student's rank position. Disclosing the rank order may be an issue in particularly small class sizes, say two to three people. Any request received where a small cohort is concerned need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. Is it feasible to obtain consent from the other individuals to release the information or is it reasonable to provide it without that consent? You'll need to consider whether it's fair to treat students differently in smaller classes by refusing to release their rank order when that information is available in larger class sizes. So it's really very, being left very much to the school's discretion. Now, of course, if you're the parent of a child or with a child yourself and you're making that request and you feel it's unreasonable that the rank order is not being revealed to you by your school, then you do, of course, have the right of appeal to the Information Commissioner's Office, to the ICO. And now, the rest of this week's news. The British Dental Association, the BDA, has suffered a data breach causing fears that the bank account numbers of a number of UK dentists may have been stolen. According to a report from the BBC, the professional association emailed its membership to warn them of the breach, telling them it is currently unsure what information has been accessed. The BDA also urged them to be vigilant about any correspondence purporting to be from their bank. The BBC stated that while the organisation does not store its members' card details, it does hold their account numbers and sort codes in order to collect direct debit payments. In the email to members, the BDA reportedly referred to logs of correspondence and notes of cases as being amongst the data that is assumed stolen. This suggests that hackers may also have access to sensitive patient information. In the email from BDA Chief Executive Martin Woodrow, he said, Owing to the sophistication of these criminals, we cannot as yet confirm the full extent of information that's been accessed. We are devastated and apologise unreservedly for this breach. The BDA's website is currently offline due to the sophisticated cyber attack, with the company stating that our IT experts have been working to rebuild our system since the incident occurred, and this is progressing well. We understand from the BDA and the ICO that the BDA have reported this data breach to the ICO, who are beginning their own investigation. If we have any further update on this, either from the ICO or the BDA, 
We will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. The Hope House Children's Hospice, which has hospices in Morda near Oswestry Street and Tomway in North Wales, says its fundraising and volunteer databases had with third-party company Blackboard were targeted in data breach. It says its care and patient records were not affected. The hospice says that no financial information such as TARD numbers, account details or passwords were accessed in the hack. The charity said it is contacting supporters to give them details of the incident and is complying with an investigation by the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO and the Charity Commission. The charity said it had been told by Blackboard that it was subject to a ransomware attack in May 2020. This course forms part of the larger story on Blackboard, which we brought to you in the last two episodes of the GDPR Witch Show, and we are continuing to keep a close watch on this process, and if we receive any more details from Blackboard, the ICO, or any of the institutions affected, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Hampshire Hospitals NHS Trust, which runs Basingstoke Hospital, has now apologised for the distress caused to mothers whose personal information was published online and said it would offer them support. The data breach came to light after the Basingstoke Gazette saw the information in a report on stillbirths on the Hampshire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust website and noticed it was listed as restricted. Realising that this information was personal and could potentially lead to the women being identified, the Basingstoke Gazette informed the Trust and waited until it removed the papers before publishing any articles. The Trust reported the possible data breach to the Information Commissioner's Office yesterday. The Trust has now issued a statement apologising to those affected and said it will offer them support. Malcolm Ace, Chief Financial Officer and Senior Information Risk Officer for the Trust, said, The privacy of our patients is of the utmost importance to the Trust and we are taking this matter very seriously. While no names or addresses were shared, in view of the sensitive nature of the information, we have referred it to the Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, as a potential breach of the Data Protection Act 2018. We will act quickly on any and all recommendations given by the ICO. We apologise for any distress caused. The three women whose experiences were noted in the report are being contacted by our team and support is being offered to them. The information, which was available online for a number of weeks, was freely available to anyone and could have been downloaded or printed. Three reviews were published in two different documents in June and July, providing details including the date and time of the stillbirth, the women's age and BMI, the gender and weight of their baby, and detailed medical history including previous miscarriages and pregnancy determinations, as well as an in-depth report of pregnancy and birth. A spokesperson for the ICO said, People's medical data is highly sensitive information, not only do people expect it to be handled carefully and securely, organisations also have a responsibility under the law. When a data incident occurs, we would expect an organisation to consider whether it's appropriate to contact the people affected and to consider whether there are any steps in that can be taken to protect them from any potential adverse effects. Hampshire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust has made us aware of an incident and we are making inquiries. If we receive any update on this, either from the ICO or from the Hampshire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, we will of bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Just email your GDPR question to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com 
and we will get back to you within 24 hours with a solution. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that on several occasions we've mentioned the data breach last year from the Marriott Hotel Group. And, of course, that data breach is potentially still going to see them fined £99 million by the UK ICO. However, there's also legal action going on in the US, as you might expect. And on Thursday, Marriott International filed a motion to dismiss Patty Springmayer and Joe Lopez's amended complaint, claiming that the plaintiffs lack Article 3 standing and failed to adequately plead their causes of action. Springmayer and Lopez previously brought a nationwide putative class action against Marriott Hotels over a data breach during which two Marriott employees improperly accessed certain guest information. The defendants first addressed standing, claiming the plaintiffs have not alleged an injury. In fact, because they did not claim that Marriott systems were hacked or vulnerable or that improper access affected sensitive personal information such as social security numbers, credit card information, passport information and other sensitive information, the defendants also argued that the plaintiffs do not claim that the access information had been misused. Marriott stated the plaintiffs only asserted that their personal information, such as name, address, birthday and loyalty number, was compromised. They said this information is often voluntarily disclosed and the plaintiffs did not allege an imminent threat of misuse. Moreover, the plaintiffs cannot create standing by claiming increased risk of identity theft or by voluntarily spending money and that the plaintiffs cannot assert diminished value or that they lost benefit of their bargain because they have not shown that their personal information, such as name and address, decreased in value. The defendants also argued that the plaintiffs did not claim that any injury is fairly traceable to the conduct alleged in the complaint. Consequently, the plaintiffs lacked standing for an injunction. Marriott declared that the plaintiffs' claims for breach of contract and breach of implied contract fail because they have not alleged a breach of contract or a breach of implied contract. Consequently, the claim for unjust enrichment must be dismissed according to the hotel giant. They also contended that the plaintiffs failed to plead their state law breach of confidence and unfair competition claims adequately. Finally, Marriott added that the plaintiffs lack standing to bring claims to a nationwide class instead of stating that any putative class should be limited to Nevada and California, where the plaintiffs live. As a result, Marriott argues that the court should not award the plaintiffs' requested declaratory judgment, stating that it is not appropriate. The court has retired to consider its opinion, and as soon as we're aware of what the update from the court is, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GPR Weekly Show. Regular listeners will also be aware that the other case which we cover with some frequency here on the GDPR Weekly Show is the data breach from British Airways, which potentially would see them receive a penalty from the Information Commission's Office of £183 million. Now, listeners, particularly in the UK, will be aware that British Airways is currently undergoing some restructuring, which is seeing it make over 10,000 of its staff redundant. As part of this restructuring process, it's also been in deep negotiations with the Information Commissioner's Office over the size of the penalty and to attempt to get the penalty reduced. And the Information Commissioner's Office is understood to be amenable to this idea, given that it understands the effect that the COVID-19 pandemic, which no one could have predicted, has had on the revenues of British Airways and therefore on British Airways' ability to pay. And certainly it would not be in the ICO's intention at all to drive British Airways to the point where the airline was forced out of business. Nonetheless, the penalty needs to be seen to be sufficiently large that other companies would not be tempted to just ignore GDPR and carry on 
however they wanted with people's data because that would negate the whole purpose of GDPR being put in place in the first place. So those negotiations are obviously very commercially confidential and no one quite knows what is going on in those negotiations. However, what has been leaked this week is news of the opening gambit from British Airways. And that is that instead of £183 million, they're proposing that the penalty is reduced to just £18.3 million, i.e. they're offering to pay 10% of the original penalty. Now, whether the ICO will consider that that is an adequate penalty or not remains to be seen. And of course, we're, as I say, we're not privy to the negotiations that are ongoing between both parties. However, what we would say is that coming back to the second point of making sure that the penalty is sufficiently severe that it deters other companies from being lackluster about their GDPR implementation, I'm not at all sure that for a company the size of British Airways, a penalty of £18.3 million is enough. Because the other thing which the ICO I'm sure will bear in mind is that if they do allow this reduction to £18.3 million, then Marriott Hotels, I think, with some justification, would come along saying, well, hang on then, we shouldn't be paying £99 million either, why don't we just pay £9.9 million? Now, whilst that would be very attractive to Marriott Hotels, I'd respectfully suggest it's not so attractive to the ICO. And so, let's hope, I think, for everyone's sake, that, yes, of course, no one wants to see either British Airways or Marriott Hotels forced out of business. That doesn't help anybody. At the same time, the penalty has to be severe. It has to hurt. And I'm not sure that 10% of the original fine does hurt. So let's hope that they can reach a suitable compromise somewhere in the middle. These negotiations are ongoing. We suspect there may well be further leaks as the negotiations continue. And whenever we hear any news, either officially or unofficially, in relation to BA and the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. Havenly, an American interior design and home decorating company, has confirmed that it has suffered a major data breach. The breach became apparent last week when the notorious hacker group Shiny Hunters offered free access to a Havenly database with 1.3 million pieces of user data via a forum on the dark web. Havenly said over the weekend that it had indeed been one of 18 companies whose stolen data comprising 386 million user records was being given away by Shiny Hunters. The other companies include HomeShift, Promo.com, Mathway, Chatbooks, Dave.com, Wattpad and Microsoft's GitHub account. It's not clear whether Shiny Hunters were the group of individuals that stole the data or if the data had already been bouncing around the internet. The Havenly database contained information such as account login names, the names of customers, hash passwords, phone numbers, zip codes, email addresses and website usage data. The passwords had apparently been hashed using the MD5 algorithm, which means many of them are as good as cracked. If you have a Havenly account, it's strongly recommended that you change your Havenly password and make sure that any other sites where you use the same password, you change it there too. Havenly told Bleeping Computer Magazine that it had begun alerting users of the incident, although there didn't seem to be anything about it on the Havenly website. Havenly said that it had recently become aware of a potential incident and as a result was forcing all of its users to change their passwords. We take the security of our community very seriously, said Havenly in a statement. As a precaution, we wanted to let you know that we recently became aware of a potential incident that may have affected the security of certain customer accounts. 
We are working with external security experts to investigate the matter. However, in the meantime, out of an abundance of caution, we are logging all existing customers out of their Havenly accounts and asking our customers to reset the password when they next log into the Havenly website. As is best practice, we also encourage all of our customers to use different passwords across all online services and applications and to update those passwords now and on a regular basis. Havenly added that while it doesn't have access to the complete credit card numbers, the last four numbers of a credit card could have been impacted by the breach. In its statement, it went on to say, We suspect that many of you will be concerned about the credit card numbers that you've used with Havenly in the past. Please note we do not store credit card information apart from the last four digits of the card, which is not enough to engage in credit card fraud. If we receive any update on this from Havenly, we will of course let you know in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Shiny hunters have been very active lately. In addition to the Havenly data breach, which we mentioned in the previous article, Shiny hunters have also been involved in the leaking onto the dark web of email addresses from a number of Australian universities, including the University of Sydney, the University of New South Wales, the University of Melbourne, the University of Queensland, the University of Tasmania, James Cook University, Swinburne University of Technology, the University of Western Australia, Curtin University and Adelaide University. The data exposed is understood to include email addresses, usernames, unencrypted passwords, legal names and full residential addresses of some 440,000 users of the Proctor-U online exam tool. A spokesperson for the University of Sydney said that Proctor-U had confirmed on Thursday that an investigation into the confidential data breach has been launched. According to the spokesperson, the data exposed relates to Proctor-U users who registered on or before 2014. The spokesperson said, We've met with Proctor-U CEO and compliance officer today who confirmed they're investigating the breach of confidential data relating to users of their service. Any breach of security and privacy of this type is, of course, deeply concerning and we will continue to work with Proctor-U to understand the circumstances of the breach and determine whether any follow-up actions are required on our part. The University of Sydney does not believe that any current students are affected by the data breach as the university only began using Proctor-U services in 2020 in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, after learning about the breach, the establishment will be reviewing our experience of online exams and proctoring this year to inform our approach to assessments in 2021. A spokesperson for Swinburne University of Technology in Victoria said that it has launched its own investigation into the breach which it said had impacted a small number of its students. If we receive any update on this from pot to you or any of the Australian universities concerned, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The ICO issued a short statement this week in response to the decision by the National Police Chiefs Council here in the UK to withdraw digital consent forms. In the statement, Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham said... In our report published on the 18th of June, we recommended that these forms were withdrawn and I'm pleased to see that this action has been taken. People expect to understand how their personal data is being used. An approach that does not seek this engagement risks dissuading citizens from reporting crime and victims may be deterred from assisting the police. The ICO's report into the use of mobile phone extraction by police forces in England and Wales recommends that a number of measures are implemented across law enforcement in order to improve compliance with data protection law and regain some public confidence that may have been lost. The ICO is also recommending the introduction of a new code of practice to improve mobile phone extraction practices and better support police and prosecutors in their work. 
help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do! It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! Just email your GDPR question to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we will get back to you within 24 hours with a solution. The Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has launched an online toolkit to help public authorities respond to Freedom of Information, FOI, requests as organisations prepare to recover from the coronavirus pandemic. The toolkit is designed to help public authorities self-assess their performance in responding to FOI requests. It generates a bespoke report which helps to identify areas for improvement and where action needs to be taken. Deborah Clark, ICO Group Manager for Insight and Compliance, said, Whilst the ICO remains pragmatic in its regulatory approach, we also now expect organisations to start putting clear plans in place to get back on track with their freedom of information work. The FOI toolkit will support public authorities to do just that. The first phase of the toolkit focuses on timeliness, a fundamental requirement of the FOI Act. It is split into five modules, covering response rates, handling requests, training and awareness, compliance and assurance, and governance structure. Further toolkit developments will see other issues addressed, such as where the cost of compliance exceeds the appropriate limit. The toolkit, which can be completed in stages or in full, works by asking the user to assess performance against a set of criteria. Each module generates a report showing an overall rating in the area, an action plan and helpful web links to relevant guidance. Deborah Clark said, This toolkit is a practical way for public authorities to assess where they are now and what they can do to improve as they return to greater capacity. We hope it will become a staple part of FOI practitioners' continual learning and it will help promote good practice which will contribute to building trust and confidence with the public. Prior to its launch, the toolkit was tested with a range of public authorities and received positive feedback and input for improvement. The ICO also received assistance from the Scottish Information Commissioner during the toolkit's development. The toolkit can be used to assess compliance with the Freedom of Information Act 2000 and the Environmental Information Regulations 2004. Anyone wishing to report a concern about freedom of information should telephone the ICO helpline on 0303 123 or go to ico.org.uk/concerns. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden. Back in episode 100, when we considered the outcome of the SREMS 2 case at the Central European Court and its implications in declaring the EU-US privacy shield inadequate, we promised that we would come back to the subject to update you. So we're going to do a brief update in this episode of the, of the programme. Unfortunately, we don't yet have a definitive answer because things are still somewhat in a state of flux. But I just want to update you with where we are or where the situation is at at the moment. Firstly, the EU-US Privacy Shield is most definitely now regarded as inadequate and to all intents and purposes dead in the water. So if you're relying on the EU-US Privacy Shield to transfer data between the EU and the US, you need to look at alternative legal frameworks for transferring the data. In the short term... The recommendation remains that the best way of achieving that is through the implementation of the standard contractual clauses into the contract between the data data controller and the data processor, which is assuming the data controller is within the EU and the data processor is in the US. 
Where the standard contractual clauses fail, though, is that because they are just in the contract between the data controller and the data processor, and they don't bind the US government, or more importantly, they don't bind the US intelligence agency, then there is an argument that they don't provide the necessary level of security of data required by GDPR. However, in the short term, they are the best option that we have available. So our advice to all of our clients is revert to the standard contractual clauses, but obviously you need to get those into your contract with your data processor, and you both need to sign that contract. But that process, you need to get underway as soon as you can. And if you need any help with that, please do reach out to us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will be very pleased to provide you with assistance. However, the whole issue of the adequacy of the EU-US Privacy Shield and the contractual clauses has also brought into question the doubt over whether really any third country outside the EU can at the moment be considered adequate because if you argue that the US case fails because of the activities of the US security agencies, well then, how can you argue that Israel, Japan or Argentina are any better, and yet they are all regarded as adequate countries? When it comes to determining whether the actions of other governments in collecting data for national security purposes are consistent with GDPR and EU Charter, then that requires a view on that, we think, from the European Commission and the CJEU. But that's not going to happen overnight. And so therefore, in the meantime, that's why we're saying in the meantime, you have to rely on the standard contractual clauses. The CJEU has said that the standard contractual clauses remain valid where the controller reduces additional safeguards to rectify any gaps. But it's not clear at the moment what those safeguards are or how they would work in practice. What has been noticed is that Google, for example, has in the last week issued notice to all of its users of Google AdWords, or Google Ads as it now brands itself, saying that it's scrapping the EU-US privacy shield as its method for transferring data between the EU-US and relying on the standard contractual clauses. What does seem certain is that after the Strems 2 case, all GDPR mechanisms for transferring personal data to third countries are much more limited in their scope, durability and stability. Because if you follow the CJEU ruling, and if you extend that to also rule out the standard contractual clauses, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet, but is perhaps a natural progression, then you reach the stage, for example, of how can a country like China ever be regarded as adequate? And therefore, any Chinese company collecting EU personal data can't transfer it back to China consistently with GDPR and therefore must store it within the EU. And this seems to be the way that the CJEU is trying to press everybody, is trying to say if you're collecting data on EU citizens, or for the benefit of the argument here, we'll say that still includes the UK, then you've got to store that data within the EU or the UK and not transfer it across the Atlantic or indeed to India or anywhere else. And that's why there's still so much discussion going on behind the scenes into quite what the way forward is from this CJEU SREMS 2 ruling and why we would urge you to keep listening to the GDPR Weekly Show because we will bring you up to date just as often as we can. What ideally needs to happen is there needs to be a new international agreement on how to balance national security and access to data with other key goals such as privacy. Such an outcome 
would be deemed an international agreement under GDPR Article 45.2c and that would support an adequacy finding and by extension shore up the access to the standard contractual clauses. This continues to be an ongoing issue and we will bring you any updates just as soon as we have them but in the meantime to emphasize once again if you are using the EU US Privacy Shield to transfer data between the EU and America then you really need to get a different contract in place incorporating the standard contractual clauses and as I say if you're unsure how to do that contact helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we will be delighted to help you. And finally this week we want to mention the Information Commissioner's Office Age Appropriate Design Code which applies to relevant information society services which are likely to be accessed by children in the UK. Examples of such services include apps, programs, connected toys and devices, search engines, social media platforms, streaming services, online games, news or educational websites and websites offering other goods or services to users over the internet. The code contains 15 key standards of age-appropriate design that must be followed by companies to support the safeguarding and fair processing of any child's personal data when using such services. The code is one of four statutory codes that the Information Commissioner is required to prepare under the Data Protection Act 2018. The ISO's website provides background to the code and sets out each of the 15 key standards in further detail. Having been laid before Parliament, the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport has now published an explanatory memorandum in respect of the code. The memorandum describes the 15 key standards set out in the code as not being technical standards, but rather a set of technology-neutral design principles and practical privacy features. The aim of the standards is to provide default settings that minimise data collection and use by default, while still providing children with the best possible access to information society services. While children's best interests are the primary focus of the code, the standards will seek to respect the rights and duties of parents and the child's evolving capacity to make their own choices. The memorandum includes information as to the implementation and ongoing review of the code. In particular, the memorandum states that there will be a 12-month transition period from the date the code comes into force. The ICO is currently preparing appropriate support for online service providers to assist them in complying with the incoming code. An assessment by the ICO as to the economic impact that the introduction of the code is likely to have is also taking place prior to the code passing through Parliament. And under the DPA, the Information Commissioner is required to keep the code under review, and so the ICO is also committed to undertake a review of the efficiency of the code one year after it comes into force. Following a significant upturn in the use of online services by children as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the code will play an important role in ensuring that children's personal data is safeguarded and processed fairly when using such services. Businesses that offer online services that are accessed by children should continue to monitor the code's progress and be prepared to make necessary changes to ensure that such services comply with the code's standard. There will doubtless be updates to this as the code passes through the UK parliamentary process and so we will bring you updates as appropriate on this in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody. And remember, keep your data safe. And cut. 
That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.